This is Vermont Edition. I'm Jane Lindholm. Every year, the state's $6 billion budget is the must-pass piece of legislation for lawmakers. But getting to agreement on the budget is fraught with philosophical differences and competing priorities. This year was expected to be no different, especially with a Republican governor and a democratically controlled legislature. Earlier in the session, lawmakers faced a $70 million shortfall in next year's spending plan, and they had zero interest in the proposal Governor Phil Scott had put forth. On March 15th, House Speaker Mitzi Johnson held a press conference with key committee chairs and ripped into Scott's 2017 budget. The governor's proposed budget is built on a house of cards. We know that. He shirked his responsibility to put a balanced budget on the table. And she used the press conference to tell Scott he needs to work with lawmakers. So we're here to say it's time for everybody to get back to the table, for everybody to cooperate and to participate in closing that last final budget gap. The next day, Governor Scott had his own press conference where he said that the House was responsible for its own budget problem. How about an opportunity to think outside the box, think creatively about what we can do to become more efficient. I'm just waiting for a proposal from House Appropriations to do so. But now here we are, not even a month later, and a budget that seems likely to win Phil Scott's approval has passed the House with an almost unanimous vote. What the heck happened? Well, we're going to talk about that right now. We're joined for this freewheeling budget discussion by VPR reporter Peter Hirschfeld and Burlington Free Press reporter April McCollum. April, Pete, welcome to you both. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Good to be with you. Pete, give us the politics of this. How did we get from where Mitzi Johnson and the governor were a month ago to a budget passed unanimously save for one vote and one that the governor could smile upon at that? Yeah, you just played those two cuts, and it really seemed to be setting up this landscape where we were going to see the Republican governor and the Democratic lawmakers come at each other with the rhetorical knives and really go to the mat over this budget. And then suddenly, and uh, perhaps unexpectedly, the House delivers a proposal that doesn't rely on any new taxes or fees to balance this $70 million shortfall in, the, in next year's budget. And there are a number of reasons uh, that caused this. Uh, Mitzi Johnson and a lot of other prominent Democrats in the House say, look, uh, we don't want to really be raising any taxes or fees right now because we're pretty sure we're going to need that capacity if any of these proposed federal cuts go through that are in President Donald Trump's budget. And for the sake of having all the resources available that we might need down the road to address these these issues, we we should not raise taxes now. Let's save it for then. The other factor in this, though, was that they wanted to come up with the deal that they thought Phil Scott would be able to work with. Mitzi Johnson said, look, um, one of the reasons we did this was because we want to reserve capacity. But frankly, the other reason is we're trying to reach across the aisle here. We're trying to work in a cooperative, bipartisan way. We wanted something that Republicans could believe in, too, and that uh, – led a lot of our thinking on this. So, April, was it just political bluster then for Mitzi Johnson to call Phil Scott's budget a house of cards and for Phil Scott to say, look, the House needs to come to the table and actually put something forward? I mean, given what Pete just said about everybody wanting to work together, was it just bluster? You know, they both still don't really, uh, well, especially the House does not really 
still does not like the governor's proposal. Um, they still um, will say when they're propo- proposing their own budget that this is a much better proposal than the governor had come up with, and his proposal would have raised taxes or put more um, put more burdens on education, property, taxpayers. Um, so they'll still say that. They still don't like his proposal. But I think at that point, when they had those press conferences, the budget gap was pretty small at that point. They had already found a lot of ways to chip away at it. This is a, a $70 million budget gap. And there were, I think, only a few million dollars at that point. They were able to find it um, through a number of different areas. And, uh, and and I think another factor is that the House Appropriations Committee that was writing the budget also did a lot of outreach to their own membership and including Republicans in the House. And so they made sure that everybody understood the budget and that there was um, enough chance to give input. I think that helped in the end with the unanimous vote, or nearly unanimous vote. Yes, just one Ferrisburg Republican who said, nope, can't do it. Now, the governor had said in his budget address that the, the, the main way he was going to close that budget gap was by requiring all of the school systems in Vermont to level fund their budgets. And um, that, would, that would actually you know, have big savings for the state. Lawmakers balked at that. So, um, April, how did the House plan close that budget gap that you were just talking about, that $70 million? Uh, well, yeah, well, they started by sidelining the governor's proposal, like you mentioned. Um, they kind of started with different numbers. Um, so the governor's proposal had all these structural changes. The House, when they were writing their budget, basically went back to last year's budget and worked from there. And then they had to just figure out basically how to how to close that $70 billion gap. Um, and they, they did it by taking a lot of the governor's suggestions, um, things like um, electronic monitoring for prisoners um, instead of relying so much on prisons, um, some reductions in the Agency of Human Services, and they actually added some more during the process, uh, some more reductions. Um, there are a number of different things. There are some, I guess, increased efficiencies. Um, but uh, So they, they took a lot of the governor's ideas, um, but they started with, with different numbers. Um, and, and as you said, um, the governor's proposal had relied on those education savings. So uh, the House had to kind of put all the pieces back and figure out with that $61 million increase in education, how were they going to um, make all the other pieces fit together? So, Pete, if you had to do what is the the bane of every reporter's existence and write a headline here that was House passes balanced budget that relies on blank, what's the blank then? Uh, um, (laughs) uh, Going where the money is and using some wishful thinking. Uh, Anytime you're going to look to close a $70 million budget gap in a budget the size of what Vermont has, which is not all that big compared to other states – you have to go where the money is, and that happens to be the Agency of Human Services, which is a $2.6 billion a year operation and indeed the largest chunk of reductions or savings come from that budget. We saw over $20 million in projected caseload savings over what we're paying this year. Uh, but there's also a lot of anticipated savings that they haven't actually identified how how they're going to bring those about. I think the administration has said, look, go ahead and book $6 million in savings for fiscal year 2018, and we're going to come up with management strategies to make that work in a way that's not going to lead to any reductions in programs or services. And people have signed off on that, but it's unclear what the actual impact of those cuts is going to be. And and we could see that come back next year um, in ways that some of the people who voted yes on this budget last week not really appreciate so much when they see how that's actually done. We've also seen the House leave it to 
the Secretary of Human Services, Al Gobey, a member of the Shumland administration, to shave $2.5 million in grants that are going out to nonprofits in Vermont that are serving low-income, needy, vulnerable Vermonters. There are a lot of people that have some real issues with that as well. They say, look, you've given this guy a blank check to cut $2.5 million from programs that we may come to be horrified by the decisions that are made around that. So um, they've made some decisions in this budget that are uh, outsourcing a, a lot of the decision-making power to the executive, and it'll be interesting to see how they go about doing that and the extent to which that causes more consternation in Montpelier. But when you say that people are upset and you know some people are, don't like this decision, uh, it doesn't appear to be House Democrats and progressives who are are saying this is the wrong decision. They've they said yes to this. Well, a yes vote, funnily enough, in Montpelier isn't always necessarily a useful indication of how uh, somebody feels about that particular bill. And I think one one great example is uh, Robin Chestnut Chestnut Tangerman. He is the head of the Progressive Caucus in the Vermont House. There's six or seven strong there, and. I said, you know, I have to believe that as a progressive, you've, you've got some issues with some of the reductions in this budget. And he said he absolutely does. And is it the budget that he wants to see? It's not. But he feels like having a seat at the table either in the fall of 2017 or when we reconvene in January of 2018 next year um, for when the decision makers have to come up with a plan for addressing projected losses in federal revenue, uh, he needs to, you know, go along and get along now, show that they're willing to bargain, show that they're pragmatic, um, that they understand some of the fiscal restraints that this face, that the state is facing. And so a lot of people's yes vote on this budget was less about uh, them being thrilled for the spending plan and more about their desire to be part of the decision-making team when the real tough decisions have to get made next year. April, would you agree with that? Yeah, there was a lot of talk, um, even when that when the budget was being discussed on the House floor. Uh, there was some concern over those grants at the Agency of Human Services that Pete mentioned. Uh, and part of the reasoning is that there may be a special session in October, and that would be a chance to look at some of these numbers again. So uh, they're, they're kind of holding off and being very cautious right now. Um, and that's what helped to build this coalition around the budget. We're talking about the budget. It's passed the House, uh, which does a lot of the heavy lifting on the state budget. Shannon Kelly is with NeighborWorks in West Rutland. She writes to defend a program they run called Heat Squad. She says Heat Squad helps low to moderate income homeowners to save money on their energy bills, be more comfortable, and have a healthier and safer home. We provide low-cost energy audits, objective advice, affordable financing, and access to trusted contractors as a one-stop shop for energy efficiency. We're asking for 250000 each year for five to seven years for our continuation and expansion of the Heat Squad program. And let's go to John calling in from Stratford. Hi, John. Go right ahead. Hi. Thank you so much. Hey, I just want to congratulate the governor and the legislature, and especially House Appropriation um, Leader Kitty Toll, for coming up with, I think, just what the voters in Vermont wanted. You know, Governor Scott was elected primarily on the basis of that we needed to take a break and not have more new taxes and fees. The House and the legislature were primarily Democrats, so they get to, in many ways, choose the priorities. 
And this, this, this kind of thing, this divided government in Vermont that can actually work and, and have compromises is not new. It happened with Governor Snelling. It happened, it happened with, um, actually, Howard Dean served to be a check on spending for the legislature, too. Um, you know, the anomaly um, was when we had supermajorities and a Democratic governor. We got a nice... Um, some balance this year, and I think it's just what the voters wanted. Voters wanted. They wanted a breather, and we got it. There's some real long-term challenges and changes that are going to have to be made, and that's where we should be really focusing our energy at this point. John, thanks for your call. Appreciate that. Yeah, you know, Governor Scott um, did basically get elected on the promise that he would not sign off on a budget that grows faster than the economy or wages. April McCollum, do you think that the House and that the legislature in general is is listening to the voters on this and saying, all right, this is what the voters want. We're going to have to find a way to make that happen. I think to some extent, I I think uh, uh, an equally, if not more powerful factor in this is the federal uncertainty and uh, President Donald Trump. Representative Toll said, I don't remember any time where we were worried about a veto from the governor when we were making this budget. That was, She said that that was not on their mind, um, but that there was a lot of, um, I guess, fear and trepidation about the federal government. So I, I think it's a mixture of factors. And again, we're going to have to see what happens as we go through the fiscal year into the fall. So, Pete, it, it's almost like the House is reserving uh, these tax increases or revenue increases for when uh, they might really need to call on them because of cuts to the federal budget that would impact Vermont. Yeah, I think that's right. But I, I think also House Democrats are not deaf to the strain of thinking that exists in Vermont that people are taxed out. And I think the reason we're seeing the approach that the House has taken uh, has as much to do with the general ideological leanings of some of the uh, members of the leadership team that were responsible for crafting that budget. And uh, these are not uh, – far-left Democrats whose first inkling is to figure out what tax can I raise to support this program that I want to see realized in the state budget. Um, Mitzi Johnson, Kitty Toll, uh, Jane Kitchell, the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, uh, their their first approach generally is how can we make the budget fit the revenues as opposed to how how can we make the revenues fit the budget. And so – there is uh, – you know, I think there. it's not like this fiscal restraint has come on high solely from Phil Scott. I think that there was a general level of, of, of thinking that's that same way from some of these House Democrats. The interesting thing will be how long does this uh, truce last? We've got unanimity on the budget right now. Um, we'll see what the Senate does, but the general sense is that they'll probably come somewhere close to what the House did in terms of no new revenues. Uh, but there's going to be some new divisions that open up if we see large sums of federal revenue suddenly not coming to the state among lawmakers over how much of that should the state backfill. And, and, and those divisions will occur likely between the Republican governor and the Democratic legislature, but then also within Democrats themselves in Montpelier. And there's going to be uh, people all over the board in terms of how much is the right amount for Vermont to raise to avert whatever uh, pitfalls would come um, through loss of federal funding. 
Today, I'm talking with Burlington Free Press reporter April McCullum and VPR reporter Peter Hirschfeld about what's in the state budget the House passed nearly unanimously. We've been talking about how it got that tripartisan support and where it differs from the budget Governor Scott put forward. Let's go now to Erhard Manke, who is uh, with the Affordable Housing Coalition of Vermont. Hi, Erhard. Nice to have you on. Hi. Uh, good afternoon, Jane. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, and yeah, um, with the Affordable Housing Coalition, um, we, as I think you and other folks on the show know, uh, represent nonprofits that do affordable housing all around the state, as well as homeless shelters. And we had a problem with uh, two of the provisions in the House uh, budget. Um, one was the elimination of uh, what's known as the cold weather exception for uh, folks who uh, are seeking or homeless and uh, seeking shelter when all of the uh, shelter beds in the state, including uh, emergency overflow shelter, uh, when all that is full uh, and they don't otherwise qualify for emergency housing through uh, the, the criteria for general assistance. This is sort of the last safety net for homeless folks when our weather gets dangerously cold uh, to make sure that people don't freeze and die in our cold winters when they're when they're homeless. So that was one of the cuts that was made. It's a $344,000 cut um, that we had a, a, a real major problem with and are hoping that the Senate will take a different approach on this. And I know... Um, also already mentioned with the $2.5 million uh, worth of unspecified cuts that Secretary Algo Bay is uh, authorized uh, uh, to make um, from grants awarded to nonprofits, um, and this could be anything from homeless shelters um, to uh, housing and community supports for people coming out of correction systems so they don't backslide and wind up going back into jail. Um, it, there's just, you know, at, a broad array of anti-poverty programs. It is just unspecified and really concerning and also something that we hope and our members very much hope the Senate will take a different approach on. Erhard, thanks for calling in. And yeah, you know, Pete was talking about people who are concerned about some of these cuts to human services, including the ones that are unspecified. But Erhard's also talking about the cold weather exemption, which is specified in the budget as uh, being cut, uh, $344,000 being cut from that. April, you know, this... Again, we're talking about a democratically controlled House of Representatives that's making deep cuts to the Agency of Human Services, an area where Democrats and progressives are not uh, typically known for, you know, trying for, for trying to make cuts there. Right. And, and of course, everybody says that they want to protect vulnerable Vermonters. And this is um, one of the, the strongest examples of um, efforts to try to do that. Um, but what I would say is the Democrats who led this effort to eliminate um, and limit, I guess, the cold weather exception, it, it's kind of a complicated uh, policy change. But um, they say they would rather put money into shelters. Um, and that is a more cost-effective, and some would argue it, it provides better support for people who go into shelters rather than just being in a motel room by themselves with the door locked. Um, so that's kind of the philosophy behind that change. It, it, it was tweaked as the House was voting on the budget in their between second and third reading. They changed it. And so it seems like that is still an area that is open to some changes. Uh, I think uh, the Senate heard uh, some concerns about that as well when they had a hearing last week. And uh, I would not be surprised if we see more tweaks to that policy. But I think overall, state legislators are trying to move away from motels. Uh, and this is a step to do that. We'll see how far we actually step away from that uh, motel room reliance. But um, a lot of um, homeless and uh, vulnerable Vermont uh, 
vulnerable Vermonter organizations are, are really concerned about that. Pete, let's talk about some of the other things that are in this budget, too, at least as it stands now, as it's passed the House. And while we're on um, some of the human services issues, let's talk about changes in mental health care. When we talked on this program recently about the ongoing problem of people who are having a, a mental health crisis, they go to the emergency room and the emergency room can't release them because there is no bed for them in a, a facility that actually treats acute mental illness. So they're waiting for days sometimes in emergency rooms that really are not equipped to treat them. What does the House budget do to address that issue and make some changes in mental health care? Well, the the real change on that would come in what the Senate is looking to do, which is to raise wages for community mental health workers that are in some cases being paid barely above the minimum wage to do some really high intensity work with with folks at the community level uh, who either have developmental disabilities or mental health conditions that um, they need help with to, to succeed socially. And we've heard from the designated agencies that run these community mental health programs that they've got 400 open positions, right, vacant positions right now that they can't fill, that they have astronomical, astronomical turnover rates among staff because they are paid so little and that – one of the things that needs to be done in order to to reduce these bottlenecks in emergency rooms is to get that community level system running like it's supposed to so that you can head off the crises that are resulting in these emergency room visits. The Senate passed a bill that would raise the minimum wage for community mental health workers to $15 an hour. The problem is that that costs uh, somewhere on the order of $30 million a year if you want to do that. And they still haven't figured out where exactly that money is going to come from. They say they don't want to raise new revenues, which means it's going to have, have to come from within the system. So they've done a really good job identifying the problem. They've done a, a good job figuring out with what a, a workable solution might be. Um, but those often are the easy parts in Montpelier. And the tough part is figuring out how to actually bring it to fruition. April? Yeah, well, there are a couple pieces in the House budget. They're not as dramatic as what the Senate was considering with increasing the, the wages. But there is a section that talks about, um, you know, telling the administration to figure out a plan to raise uh, wages at um, these designated agencies. And there also are a couple of smaller projects that would add some beds for people coming out of um, inpatient psychiatric care. And there's a new program in a, in a nursing home uh, setting. Um, but uh, Pete's right that there's not that order of $30 million to spend on these wages, which uh, I guess it was is what it would take to really address this. Yeah, I think um, in, in your free press reporting, you mentioned that the House budget directs the Department of Mental Health to spend two almost $2.5 million to increase salaries for crisis workers at these designated agencies. That is not the same as a, a tenfold increase, you know, a 20 or $30 million um, increase in, in wages. All right. So let's talk about prisons and corrections. Um, it was a fairly striking moment in uh, Governor Scott's early address when he said, let's close the uh, prison work camp in Windsor and make some savings there. We're going to work more on having ankle bracelets for people who are awaiting trial rather than have them in detention. April, what is actually in the House budget that speaks to those questions that Governor Scott had that he wanted to make sure were passed? Well, the, the, the House would keep the Windsor prison work camp open, which is probably the biggest change. Um, and I think they also, I don't have the number 
number in front of me right now, but they also do um, increase reliance on those electronic monitoring systems. Um, I think they may even do it more than the governor had initially um, anticipated. Um, and, and that change, we already have electronic monitoring in the current system, but only a handful of people are actually on it. And uh, this change would require the Department of Corrections to have uh, to change their system so that they can actually monitor people 24 hours a day, which uh, is not the current structure that's in place. So there are some, um, some changes that need to be made to that program in addition to expanding it. So some savings, but not some closing savings. the prison work camp. Right. And, and I think a lot of that concern was about um, out-of-state beds um, as well as the way that the, the dollars uh, fell. Pete, in uh, his budget address, Governor Scott also asked for increases for child care subsidies and for the state college system and UVM. Did those make it into the House budget? So let's do the state colleges first. What the House has done is said, look, we don't have the money available to fund the $4 million increase in the base allocation for Vermont State Colleges. So this would be money that would be in the budget forevermore after they do it this year. Uh, So what they've done instead is said, we're going to take $2 million out of the higher ed trust fund, which is a pot of money that's used to help uh, low-income students with tuition assistance, and it's going to be a one-time appropriation, and we know it's not the full $4 million that Chancellor Jeb Spaulding says is needed to avoid operating at a deficit next year, but at least it's something. State colleges, uh, they'll say they really appreciate the effort, but that what's needed right now is not a one-time funding bump, but an ongoing sustainable solution to what has become a a real endemic problem in terms of them being underfunded and having to look to tuition increases in order to fund operating costs at these colleges. Uh, So they will be pushing the Senate for more funding on that front. Child care subsidies, uh, nothing close to the level that Phil Scott has been calling for. And that's another area where you're going to see advocates uh, really pushing the Senate hard to include the money that Phil Scott had called for. There's an organization called Let's Grow Kids, and it was at the table for a study that was done uh, that came out at the end of last year that pegged the gap between what it would cost for every kid in this state to get affordable to get quality child care that needs it and Vermonters ability to pay for that child care at about 300 million dollars so even the 9 million dollars that Phil Scott has proposed is really sort of a, a drop in the bucket at this point but but even that's not there and so there's advocates uh, coming out of the woodwork to say look the situation is dire we have families out there that are paying up to 40% of their household income to to pay for their child care we got to do something and we'll we'll see if the senate is able to figure something out and what do you think peter is the senate likely to to go in both of those directions higher ed and uh, youngest ed i guess we could call it Jane Kitchell, chairwoman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, says, look, there are three areas uh, of funding that are not in the House budget that we would really like to make room for in our version of that plan, and that is state college funding, child care subsidies, and increased wages for mental health workers. The problem, of course, is that they are not keen on raising new revenues to do that. And they have been looking for years to, for ways to reallocate money within the existing budget that won't cause uh, negative effects that people uh, aren't willing to, to 
to go along with. So uh, it's going to be a real challenge for them. My sense is that uh, if those areas are going to get any real funding increase, it's going to have to come from money that's already in the budget earmarked for something else. And whether or not they're going to pull the trigger on that, we'll, we'll find out in the next couple of weeks. April, child care subsidies has really sort of rocketed to the top of concerns. It was a big issue in the gubernatorial election. And, you know, it's been an issue for Vermont families for a, a number of years and decades, but it seems to be one that's really uh, reached some prominence. And as Pete said, you do expect child care advocates to say this is a problem. We're seeing uh, daycare centers still close in Vermont. We're seeing people who say, I can't move to Vermont because I can't I can't find good um, child care for my children. So do you think this is an area where there is some tweaking that will happen in the budget? Or is this more of an austerity budget where lawmakers are saying, look, we don't have the money for all of the things that we would like to do? I think it's possible we'll see some tweaking. Um, the, the governor continues to insist that there's more savings that the House haven't touched. The House members have not touched yet um, through uh, educate, um, teachers' health care, I believe it is, that he keeps on pointing to. So uh, it's possible that they might find some last-minute savings there, but it's hard to kind of imagine $9 million um, of savings that they could then reallocate to child care uh, and so we'll see. It's something that everybody agrees is a problem and needs to be addressed, but I just don't know if this is the year for it. And one of the things that everybody's kind of waiting for to see if it's going to happen is, is Phil Scott going to come out with a budget proposal 2.0 kind of thing where he says, all right, so you we're not going to freeze school spending, obviously, for next year. Uh, but how about this and, and roll out another proposal to curb spending in K through 12 public public education that the legislature could could then book those savings and use to pay for all of these priorities. To date, it does not look like Phil Scott is going to be bringing something new and innovative and creative to the table. He he keeps on hitting on a lot of the same proposals that he's already put out there that lawmakers have made patently clear they don't have any interest in pursuing right now. Um, And with the exception of merging the Department of Liquor Control and the Lottery Commission, um, which lawmakers still have real reservations about that, Phil Scott says, look, we could uh, save two to four million dollars a year if we did that. So if they went along with that, then theoretically you could find up to four million dollars there to fund some of these things. But um, other than that, I, I just don't get the sense that Phil Scott is going to come in on the eleventh hour um, with a with a money saving proposal that lawmakers are going to be able to get behind. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting things of the budget that. Um the way it stands right now, the House um, agreed with the governor not to raise taxes, but the governor did not get a lot of his economic development initiatives, um, including child care, you could argue, is, is, is one of the most important um, of, the, of his proposals, um, attracting young families and helping them to stay here and young workers. Um, there was another uh, another pot of money for economic development marketing, trying to get workers and employers to come here that did not get included in the House budget. So um, as the governor tries to uh, tamp down spending, he also wants to speed up the economy or accelerate the economic growth. And a lot of the things that he wanted to do, I mean, he wanted to have code camps in schools, all these different programs that were supposed to help with economic growth 
both um, currently are, are left um, on the cutting room floor. I just want to get squeeze one more thing in here while we're talking specifically about the budget. You know, it was a big deal when State Treasurer Beth Pierce, along with Alyssa Shuren, the former DEC commissioner, came out with uh, the plan that Pierce's office had been working on to clean up Vermont's waterways over the next 20 years. And then Governor Shum, or Governor Scott, excuse me, came out and said, basically, thanks for all your hard work. I'll take it from here. And I don't want to do the plan that you've come up with. So what does the House plan look like in terms of funneling money towards uh, cleaning up our waterways? You know, this was one of the more interesting changes in tack by House leadership this year, to my mind. And when Beth Pierce came out with that report, House Democrats sounded really bullish on putting together a piece of legislation that was going to identify a secure, sustainable funding mechanism that people could count on into the future for this water quality effort. And we saw the House Committee on Natural Resources, Fish and Wildlife put together their plan, which would have raised $30 million a year mostly through an increase in the rooms and meals tax. And then that would have been sort of a a glide path to this more permanent funding plan, which was a per parcel fee on every property owner in Vermont, which is what Beth Pierce had, had recommended. We have seen that run into a brick wall in the House Committee on Ways and Means, which is the the House's tax writing committee. And at this point, it looks like all they're going to do is uh, establish a work group to study possible funding mechanisms, long-term funding mechanisms for this water quality cleanup. I can assure you that the water quality advocates that have been working for a funding plan for years and years now who finally thought this might be the year when it actually happens are really disappointed. They feel like they're kicking the can down the road and it's going to put House Democrats in a real bind next year on an election year when uh, they are going to have to put a financing mechanism in place if they don't want the one they're relying on now to expire before they have something to replace it. We've been talking today about the state budget, and thanks to VPR reporter Peter Hirschfeld and Burlington Free Press reporter April McCollum for joining us. You can also find a conversation with Peter and April about other legislative issues at vpr.net or by searching for Vermont Edition in the NPR One app. Listeners, if there's a comment you'd like to add to this conversation, leave a note on the Vermont Edition page at vpr.net. You can also find us on Facebook or tweet us at Vermont Edition. And follow Vermont Edition in NPR One for all our latest content. Vermont Edition is produced by Rick Singeri, Sam Gill Rosen, and Meg Malone. Mary Williams directed this program. Our executive producer is Patty Daniels. And our theme music was composed by Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. I'm Jane Lindholm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>